One day, uh, out of the blue, a little girl says, Mommy, where did we come from? How did we get here? Mom said, well, way back in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve had children, and their children had children, so on and so forth, down through the generations, and, and then that's how we ultimately got here. Oh, the little girl said, okay. But the more she thought about it, the more she felt she should get a second opinion. So she went out to the garage and, and asked her dad, Daddy, where did we come from? How did we get here? Dad said, well, it's like this. Millions and millions of years ago, there were these single-cell amoebas that evolved into fish. And the fish evolved into birds, the birds into mammals, and ultimately the mammals into apes. And that's where we came from. Oh, she said, that's different. She goes back in the house. Mommy, she says, you told me we came from Adam and Eve, but, but Daddy told me we came from apes. Who's right? Mom, being quick on her feet, said, well, honey, we're both right. You see, she says, I was telling you about my side of the family, and your father was telling you about his. Families can be interesting. Families can be agonizing. <laughs> Families have their issues. So it should come as something of a comfort to us to know that Jesus' family was no different. Today we come to the fifth installment in a six-part sermon series about the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Last week in Mark chapter 3, we saw how there came a point when Mary felt that Jesus was getting off course in his messianic ministry, was going off the deep end, was saying things that were way too inflammatory. And so Mary, together with Jesus' brothers and sisters, came out to, quote, restrain him. But as we saw, Jesus refused to even discuss that with his mother, instead declaring that, that his true family were his followers. If his family of origin wasn't going to stand with him, then his family of choice would. And that appears to mark a, a breach in the relationship between Jesus and his mother because it's at this point in the story of Jesus that Mary drops out of the picture, never to be heard from again, until we get to today's gospel passage, John 19. Today, we're going to focus on that passage and ask, what great lesson from the life of Mary can we learn from her experience of Jesus on the cross? Today's story. Let's start with a prayer. God, thank you for Mary. 
Thank you for the great heroes of the Bible, for their ups and their downs, their triumphs, their failures, because from all of that, we learn vital lessons for our soul, for our life. Again, today, open our hearts to learn something really important from the experiences of Mary. We ask this in the name of her son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So, here's a quick overview of everything we do and don't know about the family of Jesus as recorded in the Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, we're told that Joseph and Mary took him on a special trip to Jerusalem to the temple. And that is the last we ever hear of Joseph. So from that, we assume that Joseph must have died young, not an unusual thing, at a time in the first century when the average lifespan was just 35 years. After that story, the next time Jesus' family appears in the gospel narratives is last week's story, Mark chapter 3, where that breach occurred between Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And it's that story where first mention is made of brothers, plural, and sisters of Jesus. Then, a little bit later in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Mark actually identifies, lists the names of four of Jesus' brothers. In Mark chapter 6, the people of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth had gotten to the point that many of them were questioning the authenticity of Jesus' messianic ministry, whether he was really the one. And, and in the course of critiquing Jesus in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, the, some of the people of Nazareth said, where did this man, Jesus, get all this from? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Jose's, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they, the people of Nazareth, took offense at him. So here we see Jesus had four brothers, James, Hoses, Judas, and Simon. By the way, it's interesting that one of Jesus' brothers was named Judas. This is not the Judas Iscariot that betrayed Jesus, although Jesus' brothers did, in a sense, turn on him. Nowhere in the Gospels do we get a list of the names of Jesus' sisters, consistent with the patriarchal culture of the time. But it is important to know that Jesus wasn't that way. At a time when first century Jewish rabbis uniformly refused to take females as their disciples, Jesus did so. In fact, the names of several of Jesus' female disciples are specifically called out in Luke chapter 8. Jesus was about not just, not just our salvation in a narrow soul sense, but also about saving the world, redeeming culture, doing justice. But anyway, back to the story of Jesus' family. After Mark chapter 6, the next time his family appears is in John chapter 7, 
verse 3. By this time, Jesus' ministry had become so controversial and was gaining so much opposition that it was no longer safe for him to travel to the south of Israel. Jesus was born and lived primarily in the north of Israel. It was not safe for him to travel to the south of Israel, to the region of Judea, where Jerusalem was, because there the institutional religious leaders had made the decision that this Jesus needed to be eliminated. So it was too dangerous for him to travel there. But Jesus' brothers come along, and in an antagonistic, taunting, if you will, conversation with him, his brothers say to him, John 7, 3, Jesus Leave here, Galilee, and go to Judah so that your disciples there also may see the works that you're doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, all these miracles, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, for not even his brothers believed in him. So you've got the picture, right? This antagonism. I guess some things never change. Call it sibling rivalry. His brothers could, at this point at least, simply could not accept Jesus as the Messiah. If you've got sisters and brothers, you probably know what that sibling rivalry thing is all about, right? One day, a a Sunday school teacher was talking to her six-year-old kids about the Ten Commandments, and she had just told them about the commandment, honor your mother and father, that your days may be long on the earth. And then she said, she asked the kids, who knows, is there a commandment that tells us how we should treat our sisters and brothers? A little boy throws his hand up in the air and says, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) If you have siblings, you know what that feels like. Take comfort. Jesus also knew what that felt like. After John chapter 7, Jesus' family does not again appear in the story until we come to today's gospel passage, John 19, where Mary is there, reappears. She's back with Jesus at the cross. We're going to focus on that story in a minute, but just to tie the loop here, after that, the next time the family appears is in Acts chapter 1, when we're told that after the resurrection of Jesus, Mary now began gathering with and counting herself among the followers of Jesus. Acts goes on to tell us that Jesus' brother James became a key leader in the early Christian church. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus made a resurrection appearance, especially to James, and that must have changed everything for him. And then in a passage that, I mean, I've been in church my whole life studying the Bible, my whole life. But I never, until this week, this passage never got through to me. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us that several of Jesus' brothers became traveling evangelists sharing the message of Jesus in the early Christian church. So things really seem to have turned around for Jesus' family after his resurrection. Those are all of the known recorded biblical insights into what Jesus' family was like. And now with that as background and context, let's dig into today's story. Next week, the last in this series, we'll look at those resurrection experiences. But for today, let's focus on John 19, where Mary suddenly reappears at the cross of Jesus. Now, we don't know, after Mary's breach with Jesus in Mark chapter 3, We don't know when exactly 
she and Jesus reconciled. Now, now understand that as best we can tell, Mary always believed Jesus, her son, was the Messiah, but there was this difference of opinion about she had a narrower view of what that man and Jesus had a much more broad spiritual view of that, and that was the tension between them. So Mary always believed, but we don't know exactly when she was able to finally embrace Jesus' broader view. It may have been sometime between Mark 3 and before the crucifixion, or it may have been at the crucifixion, what she saw, experienced, and witnessed there, or it may have been at his resurrection. But regardless whether it was before, during, or after the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, when he needed his mother more than ever before, in his hour of greatest need, Mary, his mother, was there for him. Despite whatever differences they had, she was there. John 19, verse 25, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Imagine how much, how comforting it was to Jesus that in his hour of agony when he was about to cross over from this life to the next to travel through the valley of the shadow of death in his hour of grace need imagine how comforting it was for him that his mother was there and imagine how unspeakably traumatic it must have been for mary to have to watch her son being slowly tortured to death. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar describes some of the horrors of the cross. He describes it this way, a death by crucifixion was horrible and ghastly, dizziness, cramps, raging thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, public shame, the horror of anticipation, what's going to happen next, deep flesh wounds, and being mounted on the cross in a position that made every movement painful, all intensified just up to the point at which they can barely be endured, but all stopping just short of the point that would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. You see, the Romans had exquisitely designed the crucifixion process to maximize how long the, the convicted person would linger in their agony before they would lose consciousness and ultimately die. It took typically hours for a person to die on the cross, sometimes up to 24 hours to die on the cross. You who are parents... Imagine what it would be like to have to witness your child being slowly tortured to death. But imagine how much it meant to Jesus that his mama was there. When George Floyd was being murdered by those Minneapolis police officers, pinned to the ground, face to the pavement, gasping for air, unable to breathe. When he began to realize that this was going to be it, that he was in extremis, do you remember what he did? Yes. 
from some primal place inside of him, hearkening back to his earliest days. As he's about to breathe his last, he calls out, Mama! His mother had predeceased him. Mama! I'm through. Writing shortly after that in the Washington Post, Dara Beavis put it this way. In his final minutes last May, George Floyd called out for his mother, who had only passed away two years earlier. Mama, he shouted, Mama, I'm through. It was a final plea, a surrender to the death he knew was imminent. A son reaching for his mother, a mother who couldn't save him. I didn't watch much of the video of Derek Chauvin's knee slowly, torturously forcing life from George Floyd. However, Dara says, when I saw a short clip of that moment, the moment George cried out for his mother as a mother, I sobbed. I was undone. Imagine what it was like for Mary. All she can do is watch. But imagine what it meant to Jesus that she was there. And as I thought about all this this past week, it occurred to me that someday when it's my time, when I'm on my deathbed, when it's my time to travel through the valley of the shadow, when I'm in extremis, it would be so wonderful if the one God would send back for me would be my mother. If on my deathbed I could look across that room and see the spirit presence of my mother ready to help carry me from this life to the next, perfect. It would be wonderful. I've told some of you before how when I was seven years old, one day me and my cousin Jimmy were out riding bikes on the country road that ran in front of our house and we were down where a stream ran under the road and there was a bridge and we were playing under the bridge in the water there and, and that's when I got a brilliant idea. I had the idea and I, I told my cousin Jimmy, hey, let's take some of these big old rocks. There were these big, craggy, black, dark cinder blocks under in the water under the bridge. I said, what if we were to take some of these blocks up and put them across the road at the bridge so that the next car that comes along and doesn't see them will crash into them and lose control and there'll be this dramatic wreck and we'll be eyewitnesses to it. This was before Jesus saved me. <laughs> when I was still very ornery, all right. But Jimmy liked the idea. So we began laboriously carrying these heavy blocks up. Put it, we created two parallel lines at either side of the bridge so that you couldn't miss it if you were coming along. And then we stood back and we waited for that next car to come along too fast that they wouldn't see it and hit it, lose control and crash. And we would be eyewitnesses to this spectacular race. After all, there wasn't much to do in the country to amuse yourself, so you had to create your own fun. And so we stood there and we were waiting. But before another car could come along, my older cousin Nancy, riding a bicycle, came along, saw what we were doing, called us something like stupid jerks, 
and said, you're going to be in so much trouble. And she started picking up those cinder blocks and throwing them off the side of the road. I shouted, no, and I ran toward her to stop her. She threw one of those blocks, and it hit me square in the middle of my forehead with so much force, it dashed my skull. Blood spurted out. It felt like my head was going to explode. I slapped my hand over my bloody forehead, and I screamed bloody murder. Talk about a primal scream. In fact, I turned, and now I was in reflexive action. I just ran barefoot on that blacktop pavement down the roadway toward my house, wailing my mother from the backyard. Apparently heard me from a great distance because she comes running down our long driveway toward the roadway. It just so happens like, like in a dramatic movie, we met right where the, the, the driveway meets the road, and she swept me up in her arms, her wailing bloody boy, not knowing what was happening to me. She turned and she ran me back into the house to apply first aid. And what I'll never forget is how when she was running me up the driveway, how tightly she held me. So tight, it was like if anything ever happened to me, she couldn't go on. And that was the moment as a little kid that, I, that it hit me how much I was loved, how precious I was to her. When my time comes, and I'm an extremist, if I could look up and see my mother's spirit across the room, ready to hold me like she did when I'm seven and carry me across, what a comfort that would be. That's what Mary was doing for Jesus. See her. She looks up at him. Maybe she mouthed the words, I love you. Maybe she mouthed the words, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Mama's here. It occurs to me that it's like on those occasional times when one of my doggies or one of my kitty cats has reached the end of their lifespan and they're in extremis and I have to rush them to the emergency vet in the middle of the night to put them out of their pain. There, it's the last place I ever want to be in the world. But it's the only place I want to be in that moment. To be there for them as their dad. To be able to say to them, Daddy's here. It's okay. Trust me. You'll make it. It's going to be okay. We'll see each other again. That's the gift that Mary was giving to Jesus. And from that, we can draw our critical lesson for this week from 
Mary's experience in this week's Bible story. It's a, it's a lesson that is elaborated on by Mary Garcia, writing a scholarly article for the University uh, of Dayton. Mary Garcia focuses on this passage, John chapter 19, and she invites us to pay particular attention to one word that appears in this passage. Look again at John 19, 25, which says, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Garcias bids us focus attention on that word standing, and she tells us that the Greek word that is translated there as standing means to stand, to straighten up, implying a steadfast planting of oneself in a difficult place. That is what Mary was doing at the cross of Jesus. Mary Garcia elaborates on it this way. She says, placing ourselves at the scene, we can see Jesus and three women and the beloved disciple, five people all together. They're joined by the love they have for the one that is on the cross. We could say that Love compelled them to be present at that painful hour. Just as we'd also want to be present at the deathbed of a loved one. Only those that love one in pain have the courage to be at his or her side in a time like that. Suffering is not something that attracts us. It's something that repels us. When confronted by suffering, it's hard to stay firm, that is, to stand. And we're not just talking about the physical aspect of standing, but the spiritual one, especially for a mother who's watching her son die. Hence, this passage is saying, that's, is saying something profound about how love responds to suffering. In other words, God's love compels us to do that which is counterintuitive, to enter into the pain of someone else who is suffering, to stand with them in their pain when every fiber of our being wants to run away from that pain. Because that's the easiest thing to do, right? When, when somebody else is in pain, that's really uncomfortable for us. And we either want to get out of there as soon as we can, or we want to hurry up and fix their pain so that they can get out of pain so that we don't have to be in their pain with them. And so we find ourselves thinking, I'm supposed to say something. I'm supposed to say something here that's going to make it better. You know, something profound. I'm supposed to say something or do something. But usually there's nothing that we can say or that we can do that's going to make it any better. Like Mary at the cross, there was nothing she could do to stop it. So what do we end up doing? Usually we end up spouting off these pious, superficial platitudes. Things like, she's in a better place now. God just got an angel. God will never give you more than you can bear. Hang in there because on the other side of this you'll be stronger and all of those things may well be true. 
But when we say things like that to people who are in deep pain, what they in their soul hear us saying is, your feeling bad makes me feel bad. And I don't want to feel bad. So I want you to hurry up and get over feeling bad. So here are a few pious platitudes. And oh, by the way, I got to run, but I'll pray for you. And the person ends up feeling more alone and isolated than before we started. The Bible says to us, weep with those who weep. I mean, that captures it. That's what Mary was doing in today's passage. Note, please, that Romans 12, 15 does not say, tell those who weep why they shouldn't. Note that it does not say, tell those who weep what they should do to get out of their pain. That's what we tend to want to do when somebody's in deep pain around us. We want to fix them. We want to fix the situation because we don't want to be in the pain with them. When what they most need is that we be in the pain with them so that they're not alone in that pain. And so we are called to weep with those who weep. In his book, Stories for the Journey, William White tells the true story of an elderly seminary professor named Hans, whose wife of many decades, Enid, passed away. In the aftermath, Hans was so deep in his grief that he lost his appetite. He stopped eating. He refused to leave his house. Four of his friends, the seminary president and three professors, deeply worried about him, stopped by to pay him a visit. As they sat down in the living room with him to talk, Hans began to confess to them that he was having serious doubts about his faith. He said, I don't know if I can believe in God anymore. He said, I find that I can no longer pray. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure that his four friends must have had this instinct to want to say, Hans, step out of it. You're a seminary professor, for heaven's sakes. You know that when we feel most forsaken, that's when God is closest. You've preached this. You've taught it to others. Come on, man, step out of it. But that's not what his four friends did. When he said, I found that I can no longer pray, they simply sat there in a prolonged silence with him, absorbing the pain rather than denying it. And then finally, after a long silence, one of them said, then we will pray for you. If you can't pray, we will pray in your stead. And that's what they did. They began gathering with him on a daily basis for a short time of prayer together. They, the four of them, his friends, would pray for him. He would sit there disengaged like a bump on a log, but glad that his friends were there. This went on for months until one day when the four friends gathered with him, Hans said, it will no longer be necessary that you pray for me. 
he smiled and said, today I will pray with you. He was beginning to recover. The pain was beginning to become more manageable. His faith was coming back. All because there were four friends who were willing to walk through the pain with him instead of being impatient with it. To this we are called. That's what Mary was doing for Jesus, and that's what we are called to do when the Bible says weep with those who weep. Yeah, it sounds good, but what does that look like on a practical operational level? How can we really do that for the people around us? I want to share with you as we start to wind down a, a model for pastoral caregiving congregations that I read about when I was in pastoral training that I've never forgotten because it's so obviously, intuitively right on the mark. And you may say, Jeff, I'm not a pastor. Why do I need to know a pastoral care model for talking to people who are in pain? Remember, the Bible says that if you've welcomed the spirit of Jesus into your heart, you are in God's eyes a priest. Did you know that? You can go around and tell your friends, I am a priest. You may not know that. Because all of us are called to be spiritual caregivers for those around us. And if you're a deacon here at Life Journey Church, especially pay attention to this three-part model I want to share with you because that's how we want to provide care for our congregants. We want to enter their pain with them. Three-part model for these care. And, and when your spouse is in pain or one of your kids, use this same model, spiritual caregiving conversation. Step number one in the model Enter into the other person's pain. That's where you start. To put it more bluntly, shut up and listen. Instead of trying to uh, short-circuit the process and jump ahead in the conversation, step back and take the time to hear what they're experiencing and how it's causing them to feel. In this part of the conversation, ask questions like, tell me what's going on. What happened next? How does that make you feel? You see, our problem is when people are in pain, we start talking at them, and that's the last thing they need. We talk too much. It's kind of like this uh, uh, a guy who was at uh, watching a, a theater performance and at the end of the show he, he walks out through the lobby onto the sidewalks and he's walking toward where he parked his car when three muggers jump out of the bushes and, and, and try to rob him but the man puts up this furious fight Finally, the three robbers manage to subdue him. They grab his wallet and discover it's only got $2 in it. One of the robbers says to the guy, why did you put up such a fierce fight over $2? The guy says, because I was afraid you'd find the $200 I hid in my shoe. <laughs> Shut up! Don't say that! It's not helping! The moral of that story is we talk too much. So, when you're talking to somebody who's in pain, Hear their story. Don't rush it. Enter into their pain because then you've earned the right to move to step two in the conversation. Ask questions to help them discover their way forward. Not your way, but 
theirs. You may have gone through a very similar, maybe you had cancer and you're talking to somebody that has cancer, but how your path forward through cancer may not be identical to the path they need to take. So don't tell them your long story. This is still about them, not you. Help them to discover for themselves what the right way forward is for them, which means help them think through the process of healing for themselves, again, by asking questions. Ask questions like, what do you think you should do? What do you sense God wants you to do? Take time. Then, finally, the third step in the process. Now it's okay to ask if it's okay for you to share with that person some of your observations. Because now that you have entered into their pain, now that you've heard their story, now that you've let them take the conversation as far as they can, now they know how much you care and you have now earned the right to say, can I share with you a couple observations? And you can share with them what God has laid on your heart and now they'll be ready to receive it because they know how much you care. This is a simple model we can follow for for being present with people, standing with people in their pain. Before we close, though, there's one more nugget in today's gospel story that we can't pass over. Mary Garcia, the, the writer that I mentioned earlier who focuses on this passage, Mary Garcia points out that, that the, the Greek word for cross comes from the same root word as the Greek word for standing. They both share the same Greek root word, which makes sense when you think about it because the cross stands in the ground upright, right? And so Mary Garcia points out that ironically, at the very time Mary was standing with Jesus in his pain, Jesus on the cross was standing with us in our pain, the pain of humanity. You've heard it said before that on the cross, Jesus took upon himself vicariously the sins of the whole world. That's true. Isaiah 53.5 says he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. But Isaiah doesn't stop there because Jesus' work on the cross is broader than just that. Isaiah also tells us in Isaiah 53.4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So that on the cross, Jesus wasn't just taking upon himself the sins of the world, your sins, my sins. He was also taking, himself, taking upon himself vicariously, opening himself up to all the pain and the suffering of humanity. It's as if he, as son of God, said, if I'm really going to love these humans well, I need to know directly, firsthand, at a visceral level, what it's like to experience the deepest human suffering. And so Jesus voluntarily allows himself to undergo a torturous and slow and gruesome death. And in so doing, he is entering into our pain. And now when I hurt, when you hurt, Jesus knows what it feels like to hurt. Mary stood with Jesus in his pain. Jesus stands with us in our pain. And now we are called to do the same for others around us. Because that's what a follower of Jesus does.
we try to replicate in our life what we saw Jesus doing. It's like this past week, I was walking down the west hallway of the, the church, and I noticed somebody had dropped, inadvertently apparently, dropped a $20 bill on the floor. My first thought was, what would Jesus do? So I turned it into wine. Okay, that didn't really happen. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> but it makes a point. What are followers of Jesus supposed to do? What Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He stood with us in our pain. And we now are called to stand with others in their pain. I'll close with this. The great Russian playwright Chekhov, widely regarded as one of the greatest writers of all time, once wrote a short story called The Lament that tells about an elderly man who was a carriage driver, a horse and carriage driver for a living, an ancient form of taxicabs. This old man had lost his entire family except his adult son. Then his adult son passed away prematurely, leaving the man completely bereft of all family. In the aftermath of that and in his grief, one day when a wealthy man gets into the old man's carriage to be taken across town, as they get underway, in Chekhov's story, the old man says to the wealthy man, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. But the wealthy man is too preoccupied with his business affairs. He doesn't want to hear it. Later that same day, another passenger gets in to the carriage and as they get underway, the old man says to this passenger, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. But the passenger is distracted and doesn't have time to listen. Chekhov ends the short story with the old man in the stable at the end of the day. It's evening time and he's brushing down his horse. When he turns to his horse and says, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. And he pours out his heart to his horse. At least his horse would listen. It's a terrible thing to be alone in your pain. One of the greatest gifts we can ever offer anybody is to stand with them in their pain like Mary did with Jesus, like Jesus does with us, and like we are called to do. Weep with those who weep. Amen.